You're listening to the Life Tree Church Sermon of the Week. We pray that as you hear this word, you would be encouraged and inspired as you pursue Jesus in your everyday life. Good morning, Life Tree. It's been a long time. I don't even remember the last time I spoke. But it's good to be here. It's good to be a part of what God is doing. And I'm blessed with this opportunity to share this morning, even though Caleb got a hold of me late on Friday night and said, you're up. But I want to just briefly just give you a little bit of a background of what I've been doing. But I want to tie it into this morning's message because of what I see God doing globally. So I'm a part of a global movement that probably has 50 to 60 nations involved in it. And it's called the Third Education Revolution. Our mission is to redeem education from secularism, restoring it to the church into an ecosystem of veritas and virtue. Because what's happened in the context of our education system is it's been a while since evolution replaced creation, but now relativism is replacing truth increasingly. And in the context of our classrooms, the teachers may no longer even know what male and female is. Or if they do, they can't say. So our heart is to be able to recognize that for over a thousand years, from about 800 till about 1832, the church took the responsibility for education and laid the foundation for the free world. And nations were transformed when churches took this responsibility. And when you study the history of it, it's phenomenal. But we gave it back to the government in 1832 in ever-increasing ways, and we've been losing ground of really laying a foundation for our cities, for our nations, for the next generation through education. So what God's doing in the nation, I was just for about three weeks in Uganda and Nigeria. I'm working with the president in Uganda. I'm working with Janet Museveni, who's the first lady and the minister of education. We have over 35,000 Pentecostal churches, and now it looks like the Anglican churches as well, that are turning their churches into academic education centers, that are training pastors to become academic pastors, that are putting the Word of God as central in all of the education, and it's like a hub which every natural and social science is going to be connected to. But what's fascinating, whether I look at Uganda, Nigeria, and then I was just in Brazil for almost three weeks. Uh, We are seeing the church, education, and government collaborating together on this vision. We are seeing people with an understanding that if you're a Christian, you're in full-time ministry. If you're a Christian, you're a full-time missionary. If you're a Christian, you're a church planter. And you're a church planter by being the church within the context of the government that you might be working in or the school that you're a part of. Wherever you are, you are a church planter because the kingdom comes through the church. Two or three gathered in his name constitutes the church from a biblical point of view. And we're seeing just tremendous things that at some point I'm going to write out more, tell you the story of what God's doing, but it's just been phenomenal of what we're seeing. So we hit eight cities in 16 days in uh, Brazil. But I will say, you know, if you wonder what God's doing in other parts of the world, 
we're seeing a significant revival, but not only a revival, a reformation and kingdom advancement in parts of the world that's simply astounding. And you'll hear more stories at another time. But for this morning, we're going to continue on on a gospel culture. I'm going to actually draft off of Kelly and Charlotte where they left off, and I thought they did just an amazing job. I was so aware of it was the heart of God. It was the Spirit of God all over them as they shared, and all it did is stir me up just in a significant way, and I'm just blessed at where they're going and what they're focusing on and getting us focused on. So in this gospel culture, I'll put up a PowerPoint just in a minute, but I want to start with Genesis 2.15, which isn't on the PowerPoints. And I want to just say, it, the very first responsibility that God gave man was then the Lord God placed the man in the Garden of Eden to cultivate, to cultivate it and to guard it. Now that word cultivate is where we get the word culture from. So each one of us, we are cultural architects that we are influencing the cultures that we're living in with the culture of the kingdom of heaven with a gospel culture that we're bringing in to wherever we are. So when you're being salt in a sector of society, light in a sphere of influence, kingdom leaven within an institution, what you're doing is you're bringing the culture of heaven into that context. That culture of heaven is not reserved for just to be able to be in the local church in our assembly, but we go out from here as missionaries, as church planters, uh, in full-time ministry, being salt, being light, and being kingdom leaven wherever we are. So I want to start with this, uh, this first slide, and I want to focus on the oneness that it talks about. The main thing that I'm after is us to realize this is not poetic language that we're the body of Christ. This is not poetic language that you're not only baptized into Christ, but you're baptized into the body of Christ, and you belong to one another. And that what we do is if we speak against one another, we're actually harming ourselves. And God is wanting us to capture his heart for his desire for us to be one. So Kelly read this, and I can't remember if Charlotte did as well, but Ephesians 4, 2 to 4. And it just tells us to always be humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with and tolerating each other. Some of us, we have to, you have to, it takes more tolerance for me at times. Making allowances for each other's faults because of your intense love. Make every effort, work hard to keep the unity of the Spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. For there is one body, one body, one spirit, and then one glorious hope, one faith, one Lord, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all, in all, and living through all. So we have to understand the dynamic of this reality that it's not something ethereal. It is something real that we are a part of as the body of Christ. And if we neglect cultivating and guarding the reality of being one body, we begin to lose our power and our fruitfulness and our witness. In the world around us, we celebrate independence. But the kingdom of heaven celebrates healthy interdependence. 
where we recognize our need for one another and that each part of the body is supplying the nourishment and the grace that the other parts need, but it's happening through us to one another. Just as in the natural, your, be- your head, and some of us are a little different, maybe 10, 10% of your body weight and mass, 90% is below the neck. 90% of the grace of God that you experience is going to come in the context of your relationships with your friends, your spouse, your children, the body of Christ, the people around you. So most of that grace of God that we experience comes through each other, so there's an interdependence that's there. Now I want to look at the second PowerPoint of 1 Peter 3-7, to and it's about unity in marriage. Now, I'm just going to paraphrase some of this, and it just tells us the husbands, you have to have understanding, and you have to have great tact, with, and great tact and intelligent regard for the marriage relationship. As with someone physically weaker, since she is a woman, show her honor and respect as a co-heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered or ineffective. So when there's not a unity in the marriage, so often we're praying, but we're not seeing the answers or the effect of our prayers because we are divided because a kingdom or a house divided against itself can't stand. God's looking for two or three of us being in agreement in praying for his kingdom and for his will to come on earth as it is in heaven, and it requires that agreement in order for that to take place. So I'm starting in the small picture of in the context of marriage, and I'm going to be scripture-heavy this morning with quite a few different scriptures, but then the next PowerPoint, it's about unity is key to getting and staying full of his Holy Spirit. So in Acts 1.14... It talks about they were all together in one accord, which means of one heart, one mind, and one purpose. So before the Holy Spirit is poured out, there's 40 days of them seeking the Lord with worship, with prayer. I think they were processing as well. Uh, Remember James and John? You guys, you asked to be the greatest and to sit at his right and his left. Well, that really ticked us off. I think they processed stuff like that. And they got into a place of unity, and God poured out his spirit. And then it says, then Peter stood up among the 11 when the spirit was poured out. He spoke, and 3,000 got saved that day. You see, here's the dynamic. When Peter was called while he was fishing, and he's the one that speaks and preaches the gospel of the kingdom, and the fish are caught. But James and John were called while in a boat with their father, mending the nets. The father's heart is unity and reconciliation. And the interesting dynamic is when Peter's preached the gospel of the kingdom, when there's the unseen dynamic of a net without any holes, what happens is whether the fish are biting or not, the net's filled. Whether they're interested in your bait or not, the net is filled. The Lord fills the nets when that unseen dynamic of unity is there. The nets get filled when the preachers preach. The Peters could preach the same gospel message, and if there isn't the unity that's there in the background, we don't have the same effectiveness. The unity is absolutely critical to the harvest. It's critical to us being filled with the Spirit. That unity provides a container for the Spirit of God to be able to come. Yes, when we praise God, He fills us. 
When we, it says, we are his witnesses, and so is the Holy Spirit to whom he has given to those that obey him. So when we obey him in the witnessing, we get filled with the Holy Spirit, but we get full of the Holy Spirit when we're in unity. As Psalm 133 tells us, and I'm going to paraphrase this as well because almost all of you know it, it just talks about that it's like the oil that runs down Aaron's head and beard. It's like the dew of Hermon. And it's from this place that God commands his promised blessing, life evermore. Well, that oil is the Holy Spirit that's poured out when we're together in unity. That dew is the refreshing and what we need to be able to grow and mature when we're in unity. The promised part of it is the Holy Spirit of life evermore that the Holy Spirit gives when we're in unity and the promised blessings that the Lord has for us as his sons and his daughters that are in his word are released when we're in unity. It's crazy the amount that there is within the context of this passage. Now, looking at unity and inherited promises out of Numbers 32, and I'm going to paraphrase this and you can look it up after, but make note to read Numbers 32 when you get a chance. And then Joshua 1 and Judges 1 and see how they connect. So I'm going to run through this part. But it says, you're missing the big picture. Why? Gad and Reuben and half the tribe of Manasseh wanted their inheritance on the east side of the Jordan instead of where God had decided that they were going to have their inheritance because they saw two things. For one, this land is good for livestock and we have livestock. So they had a vision that was separate from the vision that God had given to Israel. They wanted an inheritance that was separate. And also the enemies had been defeated in that place already. So there was no battle to fight. And what Moses' response to them was this. He says, how can I let you settle here on this side of the Jordan while your kinsmen on the other side of the Jordan may have to go to war in order to possess the land. Why would you dishearten the rest of the people today just as the spies did who disheartened the people in the last generation? And he says, your sins are just like your ancestors, where they didn't want to go in because of the report of the ten spies, and as a result, they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years until that whole generation died, other than Joshua and Caleb. And so in this rebuke, Gad, Reuben, and half the tribe of Manasseh said, okay, okay, tell you what, we'll have our inheritance on the east side of the Jordan here, but we're going to arm ourselves with every single fighting man to fight for our brothers until they come into their inheritance, until they experience what God has promised to them. Moses said, if you do this, then you won't be sinning against the Lord, and you're going to be able to have your inheritance on that side. But it's conditional if you're fighting for your brothers, you're arming yourself, that you're more concerned about the victory and the success of your brothers and sisters or another church or another tribe than you are your own. And maybe our greatest inheritance comes when we're actually fighting for one another. Instead of looking for my own interest, this is Philippians 2, 4, where it says, have this mind in you that was in Christ Jesus. And it goes on to talk about, this is the actual Greek, don't think of your own interest, but only the interest of others. 
go, that's extreme. Only the interest of others. And then it tells us of Jesus, who empties himself, becomes a man, takes on the form of a servant, and what he does is not out of his own interest, but the interest of his father and the kingdom and our interest and our benefit. And he places our interest above his own, and that's the model that he's giving for us. And I go, that's extreme. And it is extreme. It's very extreme. But if we realized me possessing the promises of the prophetic words, the hopes, the dreams that God has put in my heart is conditional upon fighting for the success of others instead of me independently looking for my own gain that I'm wanting others around me to succeed, when I'm wanting them to be able to prosper, when I'm wanting them to experience what it is that God has intended for them, it's in that that attitude that I come into my inheritance. It's in that attitude and that posture that I experience the promises, that I experience the presence of God in a greater way because it becomes my worship. When I'm laying down my life in love for my brothers and sisters, this is love. Jesus laid down his life for us that we ought to lay down our lives for one another. And when we live in love, we live in God and God lives in us. But it's not a Hollywood definition of love. It's not a hippie definition of love. It's not a cultural definition of love. We have our definition of love. There's actually three places where it tells us loving God, or actually loving our neighbor, fulfills all the law and the prophets. And then we have the two commandments, which are there in the Ten Commandments, which are there in the 613. So if you don't know how to love one another, you can look at the 613 commandments, And where Jesus in Matthew 5, he says, not one jot or tittle of the law is going to pass away until everything's fulfilled. And then he goes on to, you've heard it said, don't commit murder, but I say to you, if you have anger in your heart. And he continues to go through this, but he's giving us a template to actually take all 613 laws to be able to get to the heart and the essence of this is how we are to love. This is what the Father was after When he said, do this and do this, he's wanting to get the heart into us. And those examples that he gave are not limited to those ones, but it's a process of how do we take 613 laws through the cross, through grace, and then look at, oh, he's teaching us to love. Something as crazy as, okay, Kelly, when you build your house, and if you have a flat house and you're going to have, you've got to realize they had their parties on the roof. They had their meals on the roof. You have to build a parapet wall around your house. Why? It's so nobody falls off the edge, so there's a wall that's protecting the children and people from falling off the edge. They might be dancing wildly. They might be just ignorant of where the boundary is. But it's the loving thing to do is to be responsible for the people that are going to be in your home so it's just an expression of love. It's fascinating when we start looking at every instruction and we start seeing the love of the Father behind each one. Now, without getting into too many more of these, I just want to go on to be able to identify in Joshua 1.15, and if you could show that PowerPoint, here's Joshua reminding them that they're not going to be able to rest on the east side of the Jordan until they bring their brothers into rest until they occupy the land, and maybe there's no true rest for us in our inheritance or what God has for us unless we're committed to assisting and helping one another 
come into their inheritance and we're fighting on their behalf. And then in Judges 1, after Joshua and the elders who outlived Joshua died, they said, Lord, who should we send? The Lord says, send Judah to go first. Judah said, Simeon, help me gain my inheritance. I'll help you gain yours. And it tells us about the seven victories they had to possess the promised land that they had been given, that they'd been given by God. But then it lists all the other tribes, how they failed to be able to defeat their enemies, come into their inheritance, and were actually oppressed by their enemies. And it, see, it shows us the independence of what happens or the results of the independence when we're not working together. But what if Judah and Simeon said to the other tribes, hey, we're going to fight for you till you come into your inheritance? I think they would have gained even more ground. But it's an interesting picture to be able to recognize what's going on there. And we have to even realize, I'm just going to go into this, it's a little bit of a side note, but there's 114 references for church in the New Testament. Out of those references, one is the church in the wilderness in Acts 7. 14 references are about the universal church encompassing past, present, and future. Jew and Gentile of all people for all time. And it's what Jesus talked about in Matthew 16 and Matthew 18, the local church. Then there's 15 references for the church that meets in a house. It's never really called a house church. It's the church that meets in a house because a church was never a building. It's always the people who are assembled together in Jesus' name. But there's 84 references out of the 114 that are the city church. Because from a biblical perspective and Jesus' worldview or kingdom orientation, a church could never be bigger than a city, and a church could never be smaller than a city. So there's 84 letters, not 84, seven letters to seven churches and revelations, but 84 of the references are to the city church. We need to realize that there's only one church in Victoria made of, up of many congregations, many families. That we need to not only meet and worship with the other churches. I think that I love this in John 17 about being one. It's reflected in the Old Testament where they're worshiping together by building a tabernacle in the wilderness. And they did that corporately. They warred against a common enemy in the promised land for a common inheritance. And they built the wall around Jerusalem in the future as a nation, as a common work. And I believe we need the worship, the warfare, and the work to be able to cause us to be one. We need these external things that we are actively involved in together for that unity to happen. You know, if you do the research, most countries that have an army, an air force, and a navy, when they're not at war, they fight each other. They're in competition with one another until they have a common enemy. Quite often as the body of Christ or as Christians, until we have a common enemy that we are fighting against, we don't come into a unity until we have that, until we need one another in a greater way. So we need that worship where we're facilitating his presence together, but we need these common enemies. They're essential for our unity. That we're fighting for one another and we're recognizing the very enemies we're against are hindering the inheritance of the promises of God that are there for us because of what Jesus has done. And a kingdom or a house divided against itself can't stand. 
I'll tell you, when we moved here in 1986, one of the first things that happened at the, at the Colwood Mall, what was it called back then? Can West. Yes, thank you. Well, it was just getting to Halloween, and they'd caught two women that had taken a baby, and they'd changed its clothes and hair in the bathroom. And we found out that they were actually two witches, and it was getting near Halloween, and there were quite often babies abducted from the hospitals and kidnapped in different places, and it was for sacrifices because the witchcraft and the Satanism in Victoria was great. But I'll tell you, what happened is there was a greater unity in the body of Christ in this city that began to happen. And as I started working on the streets for a number of years, from 91 until 95, what I started hearing from those that were Satanists and witches that said, yeah, many came to Christ, and many of them moved on because they said, we have no power. We can't operate here any longer. And we've been showing it's because of the unity of the churches. You know, whatever you think the history has been, it's so changed in Victoria as there's been a greater unity of the body of Christ. So if we've gained that much ground to the measure of unity that we have had, and we've diminished the activity of the enemy, that we are not a house divided or a kingdom divided against itself. But what happens is the enemy starts being a kingdom or house divided against itself when we're in unity it starts to break that power over a region. The te- I wish I had time to tell you all the testimonies, but I don't. But it was amazing what we saw during that period of time. And I'll still say I think that unity is being maintained. But now I want to go to John 17 of the PowerPoint 8, Unity Releases Revelation and Experience. Now, I love this prayer because Jesus begins by praying for himself. Then he prays for the disciples. Then he's praying for the future disciples that are going to come into a place of believing. And his prayer for them is this. My prayer is not for them alone, meaning the disciples that are here and now. I pray also for those who will believe, who will trust or have faith in me through their message. Verse 21 all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And then it's, I have given them the glory, which is the Holy Spirit that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I and them and you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then, Then the world will know, which is gnosko, that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Look at this. When we're in unity as the body of Christ, the revelation that the Father sent the Son is revealed to the world around us. It's the key to unlocking and releasing that revelation. Jesus said to the Pharisees in Luke 11.52, You've been given the key of knowledge but you don't use it to enter in, and you're actually hindering others from entering in. So the knowledge that we have is we are one body, there's one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, we are one. Now either we can know that in our head or we can enter into it and actively participate in that oneness of the reality of the body of Christ in the way that we're relating to one another, and if we do, 
in our marriage, in whether our small groups here, whether as a community of life tree, whether as the church in the city of Victoria, the revelation that the Father sent the Son is clearly stated, the reason that I want you to be one is so that the world will believe or have faith in me. And that we'd be then brought to a complete unity, which is a progressive tense, so that the world may know, no gnosko, that no is a personal, intimate experience of what? Of the love that the Father has for Jesus, that that love would be in the world. Their experience of the love of the Father is directly connected to our unity Our unity unlocks the kingdom of heaven, releases the culture of heaven here on earth. It opens the eyes so that people can see and believe. It opens the hearts that the Holy Spirit can be poured in, and the love of God is shed abroad in their hearts. So rather than saying, oh, it's so resistant out there, people just don't want to hear about Jesus. You know what? Once again, The gospel of the kingdom, when we're in unity, it's like a net. It doesn't matter whether they want to hear. It doesn't matter whether they're interested in the bait. It doesn't matter whether they're hungry or biting. The net winds up capturing them, whether they're hungry, whether they're interested or not. So there's something, this unseen reality of our unity that affects the world around us because if we can facilitate the culture of heaven through our unity, there's oil, there's dew, there's a revelation that the Father sent the Son. There's the experience, the love the Father has for Jesus winds up being released into the world around us. So rather than being angry at our government or at our world, let's go We are the cultivators of the culture. And we are cultivating the culture of heaven in our marriage, in our family, in life tree, in our city. And as we do, this is what we can expect. We have the keys of the kingdom. It's not by knowing these truths, but as we live these truths, we're unlocking heaven to be released here on earth. And the gates of Hades, which is the council of hell, when it says it will not prevail against us, it's not about that it's going to be able to uh, attack us. It's that it cannot resist the advancement of the kingdom of heaven in the world around us. The gates of hell will not prevail against the kingdom. Those gates mean the council, and Hades is the god of the underworld. His councils will not prevent the church from advancing the kingdom and manifesting it here on earth. And it comes through our unity. Next PowerPoint, John 13, 34. I don't know when the lights went on for this. I can't recall the time. But it's Jesus saying, a new command I give to you, love one another as I have loved you. I'm thinking that's an old commandment. And it's not. The old commandment is loving God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength, and being. Love your neighbor as yourself. The new commandment is to love one another as I have loved you. And as I looked at it, I go, dang, he's raising the bar. Love one another as I have loved you. It's pretty easy. I think we naturally love one another the way we love ourselves. The only thing is, if we don't do a good job of loving ourselves, we actually treat others the way we treat ourselves. 
the way we speak to our spouses, to our children, to our friends, to our employer, to our employees, is a direct reflection of how to the degree that we're loving ourselves. But if we are letting him love us and learning to let him love us, and we're learning to love others the way he loves us, here's what he says. He says, as I have loved you, you must love one another. By this, everyone will know, gnosko again. They're going to experience that you're my disciples. It's not about just being a good witness, being an effective apologetics teacher, but it's this unseen dynamic. If you love one another, the nets are going to be filled. There's something going on through our loving one another that produces a unity that releases the kingdom of heaven here on earth. Now, here's one of my favorite passages, and I'm going to begin to wind down here with this, but it's Colossians 2, uh, 1 through 3. Paul's saying, I want you to know how I'm contending and travailing for you. I want you to know the struggle that I'm having over you, and my purpose in this struggle is this, that you would be encouraged in heart or comforted, that you'd be united in love so that you could have the complete riches, namely the mystery of God, Christ Jesus, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And I thought, well, I already have those. I have the mind of Christ. I have that fullness in Christ. And you do. But to unlock it, it's like two keys to a safety deposit box. It's like two signatures on a check. That the encouraged in heart is the same root word for Holy Spirit, the encourager, the comforter, the advocate, the one who fights for us, our helper, our aid, our counselor, our strengthener. He said, I want you to be encouraged in heart. What's he saying? He's saying, Kelly, I want you to come alongside Charlotte the way that the Holy Spirit comes alongside you to comfort you, to encourage you, to strengthen you, to serve you, to be your aid. If you wind up serving one another the way the Holy Spirit serves you, your hearts are going to be united together in love. Jesus, after three and a half years, he says, I no longer call you servants. I now call you friends. Why? Because I'd spent three and a half years serving him. He said, servants don't know the master's business. But because now you're friends, because you've been serving me for three and a half years, now I'm going to let you in on all of the master's business. And so what we have here is we have, again, another release. If we're encouraged in heart, we relate to each other the way the Holy Spirit relates to us and serves us in that same way, we're going to be united in love, which actually means a collision. It's a fusion that takes place. It's like nuclear fission. Is it fission or fusion? Where you can take... Marty, correct me if I'm, if I'm wrong, please, all right? So... There are a variety of combinations, but you can take the hydrogen in a half bathtub full of water. You can take the battery out of a laptop and the heavy hydrogen in it, put it through what's called a tomahawk at 100 million degrees centigrade, and they fuse the molecules of the hydrogen and heavy hydrogen, fuse together and become one. 
Now, would a half bathtub full of water and the laptop battery of the combination of hydrogen and heavy hydrogen fusing together can produce 200,000 hours of kilo, uh, kilowatt hours of electricity. And there's no waste, no pollutants, no contamination because of that fusion. When we start truly becoming one, it's talking about encouraged in heart and united in love so that you could experientially have the complete riches, namely the, the mystery of God, Christ Jesus, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The treasures of wisdom and knowledge are released through our unity. The process of our unity is we are serving one another. The way that Jesus served us, the way the Holy Spirit's continually serving us, it unlocks heaven. We already have the mind of Christ, but it's this dynamic also of it's like a time-release capsule. If God gave us all the wisdom and knowledge and our love was not mature, what would that do to us? Knowledge by itself is just going to puff us up. But if the love is greater than the knowledge than the wisdom and knowledge, then it's a benefit when the love is greater because we'll use the wisdom and knowledge to benefit others. But the wisdom and knowledge is released through that dynamic of encouraged in heart and united in love. When you start studying almost every epistle, the prayers that are in each one that are to the churches, there's a repeat of the John 17 prayer in a different form. Very fascinating, and much of the preaching and teaching is along those lines as well. So, are you guys getting it? Now, let's make this practical. When we look at Scripture, heresy, what it means is, yes, one definition is false doctrine. <clears throat> but the main definition is used when it's a preference of opinion or choice that results in division. So we have 24 Baptist denominations. We have 26 Pentecostal denominations. We have a whole bunch of different denominations within our city. Now, we have to, in one sense, let's not fight against that, but we need to be able to recognize that there's preferences and sometimes things that are not major but are minor. And so now I want to bring this down to the practical reality of the damage that I see happening under COVID. And I will say several things can happen. We Maybe, you know, maybe I should start the Life Tree vaccinated church. And maybe somebody else can start the Life Tree unvaccinated church. Maybe somebody could start the Life Tree mask wearing church and somebody could, those that are against masks, so that we could all be of one heart, one mind, and one purpose. Reason I'm saying this is because I'm hearing stories of just my aunt, Christian. She said to her nieces and nephews, uh, you're not vaccinated. I no longer consider you my nieces and nephews. I heard from a friend just the other night and the father's not speaking to his children because they've been vaccinated. And he's no longer relating to them. Christian father. How many of you are experiencing tensions in family or relationship 
because you got people on two sides of this argument of vaccination, no vaccination, mask or no mask, overreach of the government, or the government actually be genuinely concerned. You know, here, here's the dynamic. There's a little book that my friend showed me that she's taken in a theology course, and it says how to talk about the good and the bad without getting ugly. Can we talk about it without there being divisions? I think it's detrimental to remain silent on it, to avoid it because we don't want to cause problems. But I think it's equally as detrimental to be so dogmatic on our positions that it's resulting in division because I can build a biblical case for both sides of this. And it's not a moral issue. It's not an issue of truth that should result in division, but it's resulting in division, in strife, in arguments everywhere. I think it's the Lord testing us. I think COVID is a great test to showing us the, the maturity or the immaturity of our love. The references that I'm just going to touch on, and Caleb has touched on, on some of these and what he's given to us, but whether 1 Corinthians 1.10... Uh, it just talks about, you know, the Lord urging us that there be no divisions and factions among you, but that you be perfectly united in your way of thinking and in your judgment about matters of the faith. And then in 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen, in reference to communion, he's telling us in verse 19, you know, to differences and opinions are unavoidable, yet they reveal which ones among you truly have God's approval. What's the God's approval part? Is it the vaccinated or the unvaccinated? Is it the masked or the unmasked? Is it for those that are saying government overreach or government concern? It's about the ones that are allowing the differences of their opinion and their stance to create division. I'll say as we grow in our knowledge of God, we're going to grow in unity. The fivefold in Ephesians 4, it says it's given to the body to equip the body until, until what? Until we reach the unity of the faith, the knowledge of the Son of God, becoming mature and attaining to full stature. I'll say if we're in greater unity, there's greater knowledge released. The more knowledge that we have of God, the more unity is the result. The lack of unity or taking a dogmatic position on something that's not related to whether Jesus was born of a virgin, that he died as a man on the cross, that he's both God and both man, that he was raised on the third day and he was ascended before the the throne of God, and now he is ruling and reigning in heaven and on earth. We're seeing the manifestation in a greater way. Anyway, now I'm getting to preach other things, but I'll say, what are the essentials and the non-essentials? And we're allowing non-essentials to result in way too much division. And we need to realize this is testing us. But it's when we're judging one another, we are to be able to be in a place of, yes, I don't like much of what's going on, not so much of the vaccination, but the mandate, because I go, God's given us sovereignty. He's given us free will. This violates my conscience. It violates my conviction. But then I got to the place of also going, okay, 
I'm called to travel. And I'm going to do what I need to do to go where, I need to, where I'm called to go. So I've been vaccinated. So I hope that some of you are still going to fellowship with me even though I'm vaccinated. I hope you're not going to judge me. See, we can have the discernment. We're to be like a jury discerning. But we're never to be in the place of the judge passing sentence and that we're excommunicating somebody in our relationship or our communication because they have a different opinion or position than me on a non-essential. And when we're divided over these non-essentials to our faith that are there in the context of Scripture, that's the immaturity. I think it's immaturity if we can't talk about it, and I think it's immaturity if we're so dogmatic in our position that it results in division, we're missing the main point. And sometimes in our defense of the truth, or what we think is in defense of the truth, is violating the loving one another, which is the primary purpose of the truth, to lead us to the place of loving God and loving one another. But if in our defense of the truth, we're in violation of love, we're creating division, we're becoming weak and powerless personally, and so is the body of Christ. We're doing harm to ourselves and harm to the body. So this is where we're going to transition into communion because it's saying when you take communion, some of you, you're doing more harm than good, 1 Corinthians 11. Because when you're coming together, as a result, there's a judgment that comes because some of you are in sin. Some of you have unforgiveness. But some of you, in simplicity, you're judging your brother or sister because of the position that you're taking that's different than the position you're taking. Therefore, many of you are weak, sick, and dying prematurely because you haven't discerned the body of Christ correctly, and we're, not, we're to be judging and examining ourselves. Lorraine hates it when I play the woman submit card. No? Okay. I'll try it. I'll try it today and we'll see what happens. <laughs> the focus has got to be on my call as the husband to lay down my life for my wife, not to bring her accountable to what she is called to. And so we need to be able to recognize my job is not to be able to tell somebody and judge them in a particular area and separate myself from them because they are of a different opinion or persuasion, and I'm in violation of love when I do that. I want people to be free, whether they're going to wear masks or not wear masks, that my love for them is the same, whether they're vaccinated or not vaccinated, whether they're crying out government overreach or whether they're saying, you know what, people aren't listening, and I'm glad the government's doing what they're doing. I'm not going to give you all of my opinions on it, I'm more wanting you to be in the conversation and a, of a recognition of the damage we're doing to the body of Christ and to ourselves by the judgments we're biting and devouring one another. Anybody know some relationships being damaged by this conversation? And the rest of you that don't, God bless you. God has protected you because it's horrible. And so my heart as we recognize the importance of the reality of the body of Christ and our oneness because of all the blessings 
of that oil of anointing, that grace of God, that refreshing dew from heaven, the promises and life that are there when we're in unity. Now, I'm not saying that there's issues that shouldn't divide us, but it's sure showing our immaturity and our carnality when we're letting issues like this divide us. My heart is hopefully in this in this communication, you're going to be able to be equipped to assist others and help them navigate through something by seeing the Lord's heart and yet not taking the responsibility to be dogmatic about having to be the one that opens their eyes, but that you can simply, hopefully, be in a discussion and of a recognition, maybe we'll only get a little ways, but that we need to be open to hearing them too hearing why they believe what they believe. Because their, their position might be based on their conscience and their conviction, based upon a revelation they have on a particular scripture. So my heart is, as we take communion, that whether it's during communion or whether we go home from here, that we have the conversations with our spouses, our family, our friends, and that our love is so great that we're not allowing uh, our position to be heresy that results in division or factions, that this is the group I'm going to fellowship with because they're in agreement with me. And I'm not going to fellowship with these ones because it just gets me angry every time I talk to them. <laughs> I see a lot of smiles, little bits of laughter that many of you are identifying. <laughs> but uh, Kelly's going to facilitate communion here. And so, Father, I just thank you that, Jesus, for all that you've done is so that we can be one. After your three and a half years of ministry, you summarized it in your high priestly prayer in John 17. And your heart's cry is that we're one as just as you and the Father are one. And I go, that's extreme. I don't think there's a disunity or a disagreement in that context. And we're moving towards that. But Lord, if we have a unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, I believe we have the opportunity to grow up and have a unity of the faith, which is we're going to believe the same thing at some point in time, whether that's in heaven or whether we're moving towards it now. But we ask that you'd move, it to, move us towards it now and, Lord, we'd recognize that the growing in that knowledge of you and of your heart is going to produce unity, and unity is going to release more knowledge, more wisdom, more of your kingdom for those around us. And we ask your blessing on our unity. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Life Tree Church Sermon of the Week. At Life Tree, we are a family all about declaring and displaying Jesus to transform lives and benefit our city. If you'd like to find out more about Lifetree, you can find us online at lifetree.ca.